So I am Pastor Michael, and on the occasion of the ordination of John Cherney, I'm going to preach a special sermon on the relationship between the pastor and his congregation. This is a relationship that is described in several places all throughout the New Testament. Because this is an important relationship. This is a vital relationship for the Christian life, for your spiritual flourishing. And it is God's provision for the ordering, the structuring of the church. So that we are not left to our own devices, to our own imagination. But God has given us instructions for how we are to do church. Today we're going to look at two of the classic passages for this relationship. First Peter chapter 5 and then Hebrews chapter 13. And so in your bulletins, if you can uh, follow along, I'll read to you first from First Peter chapter 5. Actually, let me switch my glasses. As you get older, you get more glasses. All right, so starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And in Hebrews 13:17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, I want to show you that we need shepherds. And here I'm largely adapting a sermon that I preached uh, about two and a half years ago for the ordination of our lay elders. And so if it sounds familiar, this is the reason why. And I hope that you would listen again eagerly because I think this is something that we need to be reminded of. And so we need eld- we need shepherds. Secondly, we're afraid of shepherds. And then number three, we're going to look at the chief shepherd. And, and let me um, clarify some nomenclature here. When the Bible talks about uh, elders, that word is really interchangeable with the word pastor. Um, they're really one in the same position. In the PCA, we recognize two classes of elders. There are teaching elders, what we would call pastors. 
And then there are um, ruling elders, what we would call lay elders or just elders, right? And the difference is is not in essence, but the difference is in function or um, in role. So let's begin. Number one, um, we need shepherds. So in verse two, Peter instructs the elders that they are to shepherd the flock of God. And this is where, in fact, we get the the word pastor. It's the Latin word for shepherd because pastors are shepherds. Shepherding is one of the master metaphors that we see throughout the Bible where the people of God, the congregation, are called sheep and her leaders are called shepherds. That's the relationship. Shepherd takes care of the sheep. Now, when we modern people think about that, we get all warm and fuzzy inside, right? But I want you to know that in the ancient world, where people actually dealt with sheep, who understood what sheep were like, that was a very provocative and punchy metaphor. Because you need to understand that sheep are the most stupid and helpless of all creatures. You will never see sheep living out in the wild because they have no survival skills and they will just die. There's a very helpful book written by uh, Philip Keller. Philip Keller, who uh, grew up on a sheep farm, And then as an adult, he became a professional shepherd. And then later on in life, as a second career, he became a pastor. And he wrote a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. Very helpful. And in the book, he says, listen to this. Sheep are the most stubborn and foolish of all animals. They require constant care. You have to keep constant watch over them because... They get into trouble all the time. They will fall into a pit or into a ravine. They will get near the edge of a cliff and then fall over and die. They will just blindly follow one another, leading each other into disaster. They will get stuck in a thorny bush, their wool badly mangled, and they can't get themselves out. And so they'll just bleat there helplessly. They are prone to eat poisonous weeds and then they will get sick and die. They don't know how to distinguish good food from bad so that you have to lead them as a shepherd to green passage. You have to feed your sheep because they are prone to eat poison. Are you starting to get the picture? Sheep is not a flattering image and it wasn't meant to be. Because the Bible is telling us very forcefully about our helpless condition. That on our own, we will perish. And therefore, we need shepherds to care for us, to feed us, and most vitally, to protect us. Because the greatest danger to sheep are predators. Particularly in the ancient world when much of the countryside was still untamed and and wild. And the most ferocious, the most cunning of all predators in the ancient Near East was the lion. Look with me to verse 8. 
Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The language here is absolutely terrifying. The Bible says that Satan is a lion and he is seeking to devour the followers of Christ. And he wants to destroy your life and your faith. Do you understand the peril that you are in? And then notice that the devil prowls. The the Greek word here is peripateo, which literally means to walk around. It's describing the way a lion stalks its prey. Do you know how a lion hunts? My neighbor has um, an orange tabby cat that comes into my backyard all the time. And sometimes I will watch it hunt. It's fascinating. The cat will crouch down low. And very stealthily, she'll edge closer and closer to her prey until suddenly, without warning, she'll pounce. That's how cats hunt. Sheep never see the lion coming. We have this conceit that we will recognize when Satan is tempting us, that the choice will be obvious, that we will understand this decision laying before us. But we forget what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.4, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore, when he tempts us, listen to me, when he tempts us, it'll seem to you to be good and wise, and you will be overcome with desire. My favorite illustration of this is the Odyssey. The Odyssey is a famous Greek myth. And it's the story of Odysseus returning home from the Trojan War. And on the sea voyage, his ship has to pass by the island of the Sirens. The Sirens are these evil, horrible monsters who devour human flesh, but they have beautiful voices. They have these angelic voices which make them irresistible, which they lure men to their doom. So Odysseus, being very savvy, being very crafty, in order to protect his men, he gives them each a ball of wax so they could cover their ears so they won't hear the song of the sirens. But he decides for himself that he would very much like to hear their voices. So he orders his men to tie him to the mast. And he gives them orders that under no circumstances are they to release him. As the ship nears the island, Odysseus hears the song of the sirens. And he loses his mind. He forgets his earlier convictions of returning home to his wife and family And he becomes insane with desire. And with all of his might, he's struggling to break free from the ropes. And he's screaming at his men. He's screaming at them, let me go. As your captain, I order you, release me. His men see their captain straining against the ropes, 
trying to break free. And they know what he's saying. They know what he's ordering them to do. And so they go up to Odysseus and then they tighten the ropes and they hold him to the mast, thereby saving his life. The point of the story is that all of us at some point will experience the song of the sirens. We will all face some kind of temptation and it will be different for all of us that will lead us to our destruction and doom. And we won't be able to stop ourselves because we will be insane with desire. We will lose our minds. And therefore, the only way that we can survive this temptation that is coming for all of us is that we have to authorize the church to tie us to the mast. How do we do that? First, we need to find pastors and leaders that you trust and respect. And you have to authorize them to shepherd you. And it can't be an implicit understanding. Because remember, you're going to forget your earlier convictions. And so you have to enter into a covenant with them. And it has to be an explicit agreement that you will receive their ministrations that you will talk with them when they request a conversation with you about your sins. That is what church membership is. These are the vows of church membership. It's making explicit this covenant. And then you have to submit to their authority. Because their role, Paul, uh, Peter says in verse 2, is to exercise oversight. The Greek word there is episcopeo. It means to watch over someone. It literally means to be an overseer. And it describes an intense activity of constant watchfulness and care. Philip Keller in his book says that a shepherd always lives with his sleep, with his sheep. He never goes home. But in fact, he sleeps with his sheep. And therefore, he intimately knows each of his sheep. He's constantly handling his sheep. He's carefully examining them for signs of disease or injury. That's what a shepherd does. And some of you are saying, I don't know if I want that. That sounds awfully intrusive. Do I want someone constantly handling me? constantly probing and digging into my life. And so that leads me to my second point. We're afraid of shepherds. So this is our problem. The Bible says we desperately need shepherding. But at the same time, we're afraid of being shepherded. We're afraid of two things. We're afraid of being abused and we're afraid of losing control. And so what should we do with our fears? Let me go through them one at a time. First, we're afraid of being abused. And here I want you to know that the abuse goes both ways. The abuse goes both ways. In verse 5, Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, 
be subject to the elders. Now, first of all, the word younger there is not just talking about people who are younger in age, because, you know, John is only 28 years old. That applies to only a small percentage of you who are actually younger than him. But the word younger here is a metaphor for the whole congregation, our relationship to our shepherd. But the word I want to focus on, the key word, is the word likewise. It's the Greek word homoois. Homoois means in the same manner, in the same way. And therefore, do you understand what Peter is saying? He's saying it's not just the congregation that is submitting, but it's the pastor as well. So that it is both the pastor and the congregation submitting and humbly accepting their respective roles in this drama of the church. And so I want to address each of these roles. First, let me give a, a word of instruction and guidance to the shepherd. Let me speak directly to John. John, we've talked about this on our walks. I want you to know that the call to shepherd is the call to suffer. I want you to know that ministry is suffering. Peter makes this clear in our passage when he talks about painful trials and anxieties. Or if you look at the example of Moses, the Apostle Paul, their life was full of grief and heartache. And so, John, I want you to know that in your role as pastor, you will receive criticism, sometimes harsh criticism. And that criticism will be like a constant drizzling rain falling upon you. And then sometimes the rain will become a thunderstorm and it will pound down, pound you down. You will be misunderstood. You will be slandered. People will be angry with you, sometimes so angry that they refuse to talk with you. You will experience personal betrayal. And it will happen so regularly. And the shrapnel of those encounters will be so painful and traumatic that you will be strongly tempted to pull back, to guard your heart, to build up walls of protection. But you must not do that. John, you cannot love a people without risking your heart. There is no such thing as professional detachment in ministry. You are not, a pastor is not just a vendor dispensing religious services to his clientele. Because the essence of the pastoral call is to love. And as every parent knows, you cannot be safe when you love. And therefore, John, you will be wounded and you will learn to walk with a pastoral limp. And just like Jacob, when he wrestled with God, that limp will be a sign. It will be a mark of God's grace and power in your life. Let me address now the congregation. The Bible says that we are to submit to our shepherds. 
We are to be subject to their authority. Hebrews 13 says we are to obey them. Now I know that those words of submission and obedience, these are dirty words in our culture. And we are wary of corrupt leaders who have abused their power. Every day we see headlines of of another leader's fall from grace. And we see this happening in every arena of life. We see this in the world of sports. USA Women's Gymnastics has, uh, just in the past few years, there was a massive scandal where Larry Nasser was enabled and, and, and uh, abusing young women. And the entire organization enabled him and understood what was going on. Or do you guys remember the story of Penn State football, which was the storied program with this tight-knit community? But now we realize that Joe Paterno and the school administration, they knew about Jerry Sandusky, his predations on young boys, and they did nothing. But they let it happen, and they protected him. We could talk about all the scandals of business, too many to enumerate, Enron, Bernie Madoff, Theranos, and Elizabeth Holmes. Should I even go into politics and government, which we now think of as synonymous with fraud and scandal? Or let's talk about religion. In the past few decades, we have seen this unfolding story of the Catholic priest sex scandal. And if you've ever seen the movie Spotlight, which I recommend, it's an excellent film, and the investigation of the Boston Globe, we realized that the cover-up and uh, the abuse went up to the highest levels of church hierarchy. Or let's talk about evangelicals. Too many scandals to enumerate, so let's just talk about the last 30 days. In the last 30 days, we have seen the shameful fall of Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias, just in the last 30 days. And in all of these cases, these are not just individuals. These are whole institutions covering up for these crimes and evil. And therefore, in our generation, we have seen a precipitous decline in the trust in institutions. According to the Gallup poll, as recently as 1985, 65% of Americans express confidence in organized religion, that institutional religion would do the right thing in most of the cases. That seems almost quaint to us now. Do you know what the number is right now? It's 36%. We have seen a similar drop in media, in education, in science. We live in a world where we assume everyone is lying to us. We expect betrayal and fraud. And so in our culture, we see this deep cynicism, this loss of social trust. And the cost is a breakdown in the social fabric. And what we're seeing, therefore, is increasing polarization. You can all feel it, can't you? Increasing polarization where people don't just disagree with each other, they hate each other. And in this context of social fragmentation, we can't address the problems in our society. 
We can't cooperate with each other when you don't trust the other side. When there's no goodwill, there's no confidence of good faith in other people. I want you to know that this breakdown in society is having profound effects, not just in the social landscape and in our institutions, but on individuals. The National Center for Health Statistics released their preliminary data for 2020. Here's what they say. One third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety and depression. 25% of young adults ages 18 to 24 have contemplated suicide in the last 30 days. I want you to think about that for a moment. One out of four young people are thinking about ending their lives. It's sobering. We are experiencing an epidemic of addiction and suicide, what sociologists have now called deaths of despair. These are not just blips on the statistical map, but these are widespread and far-reaching, so much so that in the last three years, we have seen a decline in life expectancy. I'm not including 2020, okay, but the years prior to 2020, we have seen a consistent drop in life expectancy and lifespans, which has never happened in U.S. history except in times of severe war. What is going on in our country? I want you to know that when the Bible asks us to submit to our church leaders, it is not sacrificing you as an individual for the sake of the group, but it is for your good. You cannot separate your individual well-being from the church. We cannot be the church We cannot fulfill the mission of the church that Jesus Christ gave us unless we trust one another. Now, does that mean we ignore the problem of abusive church leaders? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Listen to me. Every human being is capable of gross abuse of power. I feel it in my heart. Do you feel it in yours? And therefore, we need strong structures of accountability. We need to surround our pastors with elders who are independent-minded, not just yes-men. We need to foster a culture of transparency and vulnerability. And this whole paradigm that I see in, in larger churches of a charismatic pastor who makes himself indispensable and therefore he's above reproach, above accountability. That whole paradigm is toxic. It is toxic. And so we need to empower our elders to offer strong counsel, correction, and loving rebuke. Because you know why? Pastors are sheep too. And they need to be shepherded. I have worked very hard to build such a leadership culture here at IGC. And so I invite you to go and verify for yourself if this is true. 
God gave us structures of mutual accountability for our good. The congregation is accountable to the pastor. The pastor is accountable to the congregation. It's about mutual submission, mutual support and love. This is how the Lord Jesus designed his church. And let us do this for each other without without complaining, not grudgingly, but with our whole heart. And let us not give each other cause for groaning, as Hebrews 13 tells us, but let us give each other cause for rejoicing. And so let me appeal to the congregation of IGC. Let John's ministry be a joy. Let it be a joy. I want to entreat you, I want to implore you to support him, to love him, to encourage him, and then to forgive him and embrace him when he falls short. So that's the first fear. We're afraid of abuse. Secondly, we're afraid of losing control. We're afraid that if we submit, if we surrender our autonomy, then we will lose our freedom. And that feels like a kind of death. And so we're always trying to keep our options open. We want to remain a free agent. But I want you to know that unless you are rooted in a place, if you are always just tumbleweed passing on by, you will perish. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 24, listen to this. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus is saying that you have to be planted. You have to commit to a community, to a mission that is bigger than yourself. Recently, I watched the film Moneyball on Netflix. It's a really good film. And it's the story of the 2002 Oakland A's, this scrappy, small market team with a tiny budget. And at the beginning of the film, uh, the team is gutted. All their marquee players are poached by richer teams. And the general manager, Billy Bean, he has to rebuild this team from the ground up with almost no money. And so he decides to use this very innovative but controversial idea called Sabre Matrix, which uses statistics, you know, on-base percentage to evaluate the value in players. And using Sabre Matrix, he builds this really unorthodox team that everyone laughs at, everyone scoffs at, but they go on to break records. They win 20 games They go on a a 20-game winning streak, which is almost unheard of in baseball. The last time it happened was 100 years ago. But ultimately, the Oakland Oakland A's, even though they make it deep into the postseason, ultimately, they don't win the World Series. And near the end of the movie, it's this big letdown. and, And you're wondering, is that it? Is that how the story ends? 
And then there's a final scene, and this final scene almost feels like a postscript. In the final scene, Billy Bean is contacted by the Boston Red Sox, which is one of the wealthiest teams in Major League Baseball. He's picked up in a limousine. The owner takes him on a tour of Fenway Park, which, by the way, I've been to. This incredible, resource-rich ballpark. He takes Billy Bean up to one of the luxury boxes in the stands, and then he passes over a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper is his offer for $12.5 million, which would make Billy Bean the highest-paid GM in all of sports. It's an incredible offer, an incredible offer. But it would mean that he would have to leave this team that he has invested so many decades of his life. And more importantly, it would mean that he has to leave his daughter, with whom he shares joint custody with his ex-wife. And so he's weighing this decision. And you know, in some ways, it's not even a contest. He should take the money. His assistant says, it's, it's not even just the money, but it's what the money says about you, about your value and your worth. He says, take the money. It's not even a question. And then in the final scene of the movie, Billy Bean, he's driving across the Bay Bridge and he puts on this CD and on the CD is a recording of a song that he asked his daughter to make for him. And as he's listening to this song, in the emotional climax of the movie, he decides to turn down the offer and he stays with the Oakland A's. And as I was watching this scene, I started weeping. I couldn't help it because it was so beautiful. Because we don't see that anymore in our culture. You know, it is so rare for someone to commit to a people and to a place. It is so rare to be able to find a place that you can call home. To find a place where you belong, where you are wanted so that you're not just a free agent, constantly shopping around for the next best deal. I mean, aren't you tired of moving from place to place? And so I appeal to you to sink down your roots, to commit to a church, and to make it your home. Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it becomes planted, only then will it bear fruit. Finally, let's look at the chief shepherd. So this mutual act of, this act of mutual submission that Peter describes, I want you to know doesn't come naturally. You know, our instincts tell us that when things go bad, to cut ties and run. And so where do we find the strength to persevere? Look with me to verse 6. Peter writes, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast all your anxieties on Him. I want to close with two words a word to the congregation, and then a word to John as our pastor. So first, 
a word to the congregation. I want you to know that there is a pastor behind your human pastor. That Jesus Christ is your chief shepherd. And you can trust him. You know why? Because he laid down his life for you. I want you to know that human shepherds will fail you. You know, John, he has his own sin issues and idolatries and weaknesses. And for the most part, we haven't experienced them yet because we're just at the beginning of this relationship. But no doubt, we will feel the full force of them eventually. And when we do, it will be a painful trial to bear. But I want you to know that the chief shepherd will never fail you. And I want you to know that behind John is his most wise and loving care for you. And you can trust him. And you can submit to the Lord Jesus through his under-shepherd, John. Let me close with a word to John. John, I'm not going to lie. To be a pastor is a difficult thing. And from this point forward, you can't be happy unless the sheep are safe. And your heart will be tied to the church. And in the church, you will experience your deepest joys, but also your deepest agonies. And Christina, I want you to know that you will suffer too. You will bear all of John's wounds and all the slings and arrows that come his way will enter into your very heart. I know I'm not making this job sound very attractive. So why should he do it? Why should he take on this task? John, I want you to look at verse 4. Peter says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want you to know that all human, merely human endeavors, that every worldly accolade and achievement will fade. They will crumble and pass away because this world is passing away. But everything that you do, John, unto the Lord, and this applies not just to John, but to everyone in this congregation, Everything that you do unto the Lord will last forever and ever. And one day, John, you will stand before the chief shepherd and he will say to you, well done, John. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I was watching you the whole time. I'm so pleased with you. I'm so proud of you. Enter now into the joy of your master. And those words, those words will echo in the new creation forever. And I want you to know that ultimately you're not living for the praise and the approval of the congregation because that comes and goes. But you are living for the praise and the approval of the Lord. And that's your reward. That's your nourishment and sustenance. Please join me in prayer.
Lord, this drama of shepherding in the church is scary. It's scary for the shepherd. It's scary for the sheep. But it is your wise and loving arrangement for our good, for our spiritual flourishing, for the mission of making disciples of all nations. Empower us now by your Holy Spirit to do our part, to play our roles well. And I pray especially for John, with the Spirit rest upon him. Empower him with your love and with your gentleness, with your courage and with your truth. And help us to support him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.